This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Jim. I'm Brian. And we're going to talk about Citadel Fear by Francis Stevens. This is uh, uh, sort of hard to get. Uh, short, mm, I was going to say short novel. Novel. Uh, first published in 1918. And then I think uh, in uh, seri- Serial was combined in the version I put up in um, Famous Fantastic Mysteries with amazing Virgil Finlay art. And then I think there was a 1970 paperback. And... And there's an ebook out there floating around that has missing chapters from the end of the book. Uh, so you don't want to get that version. Um, who here has read other Francis Stevens? I'm raising my hand. I have not. Oh, I don't think I have. <laughs> and Brian, you haven't? Not yet. I'm looking forward to more. Okay, well, uh, I can recommend at least... One other story, which I finished, called Friend Island, which is a science fiction story. Um, It's a comedic kind of science fiction story set in a distant future where women are the dominant gender. And the main character is a uh, journalist, a man who has gone into the profession women normally run. And he's interviewing a sea woman who, who tells the story of... Uh, one time she was stranded on a desert island. Um, the sea is patrolled by peace ships <laughs> because women in, are in charge. Um, oh, not warships. Yeah. No, not warships. I'm not sure why uh, they're patrolling the seas so much considering um, there's no war. But <laughs> it's kind of a tall tale and there's a lot of humor in it. Um, instead of interviewing her in a uh, uh, seaside um drinking establishment uh he interviews her in a seaside tea house (laughs) so she you know women are teetotalers of course because they run society so nobody drinks but she's still somehow managed to be quite grizzled even though she she only drinks tea and uh it's a it's a tall tale and it it's a a lot about um sort of playing with gender identity and um and i think it's very well worth reading the other one I've started, I haven't finished this one yet, but I'm very interested in. It's, it's fascinating, in fact, digging digging, digging through all the hints that she puts in. There's a story called The Elf Trap, which um, was podcast years and years ago, but I don't think has been subsequently. And I, I don't even have that MP3 anymore. But it uh, is set in a place I thought didn't exist, uh, in Carcassonne, Kentucky. Um, pretty sure it's uh, in Kentucky, even though it says in the story it's in uh, Carolina, which is not obviously a specific place. But there is just across the border from, I think, North Carolina in Kentucky, there is a place, a real place called Carcassonne. And it's so obscure. It has no Wikipedia entry. If you go there on um, the uh, Google Maps for it, it doesn't have like a there is a post office and there is a, a road and that's basically exactly how it's described in the story 
Um, it's about an artist colony nearby a, um, a bungalow. And the main character was a professor of biology who went there on vacation. We read about his story in his uh, notes uh, of where he was supposed to be resting. He turns out he became uh, quite interested in something. And uh, it's super interesting. It's like it, she's kind of like a female Lovecraft in a certain sense. She's really interested in very specific sort of arcane um, things that are hidden just beyond the realm of uh, our normal perceptions. So I th I think there's much more to explore with this author. Uh, by the way, her For, name is not really uh, Frances Stevens. That's her pen name. Her right, real name was right. Gertrude Mabel Barrows Bennett. And people accused her of being a pseudonym for uh, merit, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, it's it's very adventury in that same sort of sense, I guess. At least in this one. What did you guys make of this book? Uh, just personally, I had a blast. Uh, I was, uh, I thought the first part was uh, just pure raving pulp. And yeah. then uh, uh, I really admired the sudden shift of uh, time and location. Uh, when we go from, oh, well, here we are in this ancient, bizarre city. And then, whoop, now we're on the east coast of the U.S. And it's years later. Wow. Uh, that was that was impressive. It reminded me of the uh, giant narrative yank in uh, Neil Stephenson's Seven Eves. Hmm. Um and then the final battle was uh, was a lot of fun. It was it, it reminded me of uh, you know pulp from the period and uh, also a little little Tim Powersy. Hmm, I can see that. That's that's a very good way of putting it. It it starts off with this this pulp this pulp sort of lost civilization sort of thing that you would see like say a writer Haggard except mm -hmm. except, except in America and then and then we jump to having the have it happen at the home front as our protagonist discovers that what he left behind in Mexico has come, come to haunt to him, haunt him. Come, yeah. come back to haunt him in quite, quite a literal sense both 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 the woman and his former uh, spoiler his partner who turns out to yeah <laughs> turns out to be the antagonist in the end and I was wondering, like, okay, so who is this? Who is this bad guy? Who's? I was thinking for the longest while it was one of the one of the priests we saw, and then when it revealed mm. to be his old friend, like, ah, that that makes a nice sort of narrative sort of closure. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I was disappointed that the Goodreads summary in two sentences tells you the entire plot. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I want somebody to read that to me. Um, because I, I'm still not 100% sure what happened. I spent a lot of time thinking about, wow, that's really interesting. And then a lot of the audiobook would be like, oh, damn it, I lost, I lost thread. You know, because um, <laughs> uh, I think I should have read this in paper, at least uh, in part. Because uh, going back over just the first um, couple of chapters, um, I'm like, seeing, I'm seeing that it's actually really well constructed. But before we get okay, to the... Before we go too deep into that, I want to hear Mr. Jim Moon, uh, his reaction oh, to this book. Well, so I, I did read it on paper. Oh, okay. um, as I thought, kind of, uh, uh, I wanted, there's a, well, for my time scale, it was easy for me just to read a few chapters every night. Mm -hmm. And uh, although I had the scanned PDF, I did uh, download the ebook. And then I got two thirds of the way through and it just stops with him being yep. strangled to death by a python. <laughs> I was. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this isn't where it's supposed to end. 
yeah. But but I, I found it sort of uh, again. I had another thing when when you get the the first kind of shift about two thirds of the way through. I did have to check there wasn't. I hadn't missed a chapter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, where are we now? And um, there's a few things that are wrong footed me, like the fact that our hero in the first chapter in the Lost City, she's nearly always calling him Boots, right? And then from the second half on, he becomes Colin. <laughs> And there's a few kind of that where she actually has several other characters have about three or four names and she switches between them. Mm-hmm. And someone's like, ah, right, who are, who's the, is it Reed Kennedy? <laughs> who is this? Yeah. Um, I think like, so actually reading it in chapters actually probably didn't help like that. Cause I seem to get rather confused at bits. I no, mean, I, I find that as an audiobook the same experience. Eh. Yeah. I, mean, I found kind of, I, I love the, the first third in the lost city mm-hmm. and it was kind of like oh yes he's, he's really it put me in mind of the mound mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and when it switched suddenly it's kind of i found it sort of became very melodramatic in the middle section mm-hmm. where um there's kind of a lot of people talking about things yes before you get to the um well kind of uh, what i think of as uh, <laughs> uh dr moreau in the suburbs <laughs> Yeah, yes. <laughs> literally yes. shouted out to Doctor Moreau. Yes, yeah. and that, some of that was really great at the end. Although it did, I know it's a style of the of the time, but that was very kind of not so much pulp, but very melodramatic. With I will stop and give you a gigantic speech about my <laughs> even gloat and gloat. And, oh, oh, stop that! You've killed me. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I love the fact that as a giant killer ape they called Genghis Khan. Yeah, I mean, oh, I mean, that's like that's the pulp equivalent of the adrenaline injection into the heart in pulp fiction. Yeah, it's like there you go. It's pretty <laughs> brilliant. Um, but it's uh, tapping into there's a whole sub sub genre of things featuring killer gorillas and killer mm-hmm. apes around this time in American culture, weirdly. And they, they turn up in all kinds of different stories. And it was kind of, you know, was, third act needs something. Throw in a, throw in a killer monkey. Yeah, well, which is not even really, really fits in well with the whole Aztec thing. It's like, what is it? What is it? What does the killer giant ape have to do with Aztec mythology? Absolutely nothing. But, you know, we still have Genghis Khan as an, as, 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 uh, as a sub boss in, in this whole thing anyway. Yeah. Well, it's, it's weird. It's a, uh, it's, it's a strangely international novel in that the uh, the Irish nature of the heroes is a key plot point. Yep. And mm. uh, I'm going to come back to that later. But so we've got that. We have the United States. We have Mexico present, and then we have Mexico past, and then we have gorillas, and then <laughs> at the end we have a whole raft of gods. I mean, what do we get? We get Egypt. We get Japan. I mean, it's a mm. it's really curious how. How, how transnational it is she i think she she's just like over bursting with ideas and that it's like it's it's almost undisciplined in in her her skill her skill is there but it's like it's it's like she thinks i'm gonna die soon and i gotta get it all get it all in this one book because <laughs> uh. it does it is all over the place in a lot of respects but uh scene by scene it's amazing right it's, it's got some. I, I think that opening is just terrific. I love. I love any time 
two two dudes are wandering through the desert and then they come across an oasis. I mean, that is that is the one of my favorite tropes uh, in in all of anything really. Um, but uh, it's also of the time. You know, the Monster Men. This book by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Paul, did you do oh, a yes, show with me yeah. on that? Or uh, I, I I was not on the show with you for that one. Mr. Jim Moon, were you there? That was um. A, an audiobook uh, uh, done by Paul uh, uh, David Stifel. He he went through all of the Edgar Rice Burroughs public domain books and did audiobooks out of them. This is uh, it's from 1913. It's it's not as well known as Tarzan or the Barsoom books, but it's it is his take on um, on uh, the island of Doctor Moreau basically, and it's it, the main character is a a man without a soul, right? He's a created creature. And there's this beautiful woman and there's uh, like 12 other created creatures. And then in the end, we uh, it turns out, it turns out that actually he wasn't a created, that he, he just lost his memory. And so it's okay for him to marry the girl, right? <laughs> because he is a man without a soul. And um, it, it is, it's all over the place. It's got pirates and machine gunning scenes and, uh, it's it's uh, it's it is very pulpy this whole period and she's right in there mixing it up but i also see like th- this is um this is a book did you guys see there's one i think the 1971 has a quote from hp lovecraft on the back apparently completely spurious like just yeah. <laughs> somebody yeah, saying I, yep. I looked for it i saw so i couldn't find it. no it's like that's <laughs> bullshit i i mean it sound you you so totally see why he would endorse it it's got tentacles in it right this has got all sorts of that. stuff yeah elder gods uh, called out basically so what's the source of this is it a misreading of a letter or what i might be just made out up out of hold cloth who knows is a yeah. Um, it's a 1970 um, publication, but it says, uh, "Wonderful and tragically a, tr- a tragic allegory, amazing and thrilling." H.P. Lovecraft it doesn't say this particular book. It just says, you know, it just could be anything <laughs> slapped on the back of the book. Um, he he did read all of these uh, sort of pulp magazines. Um, he read all stories, so it's entirely possible that he read it. But as far as I know, he never. Uh, actually commented on this, but it is very much like the mound in a, in a lot of respects, or the Cursey Egg a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, and say her, a lot of her kind of her strange monsters that are both the product of ancient sorcery and mad science. I think a very kind of Lovecraftian. I mean, the reveal that. You know, there's a born of this sort of bizarre fungaloid process. Is very put me in mind of the shunned house. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What and, I uh, what I would I would point to though as a, a very different, and I don't know how obvious it would have been at the time, given that she's using a male pseudonym. But she's she she's like she always brings it back to the domestic. Did you notice that? Like yes, yeah. everything goes back to the house, inside the house, and the women characters are not um, more powerful than the men in it, any one sense, but they're at least as powerful in some senses. Um, they might be a little bit hard to understand, but they are—they're um, always uh, a, 
the it always comes back. I mean, the, just the having the scene of a house being sort of attacked. It makes me think like you know there was a domestic dispute and then the cops come <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then she says, well you know. Uh, all that blood can be explained by the manifestation of uh, Quetzalcoatl. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, but it keeps happening, right? Well, you know, those, those Aztec gods, right? you just can't get rid of them. No, <laughs> apparently you meet them once and they're with you for life. Uh, Paul, you you had that uh, summary because I, I need a summary. I, I do not, I don't know, not really know what's happening in this book a lot of the time. Sure. Two adventurers discover a lost city in the Mexican jungle. One is taken over by an evil god, while the other falls in love with a woman from Talapalan. Back in the States, the possessed man begins to use magic to mutate civilians. The other walks away, but the pair must duel in the end. This is a terrible summary, to be perfectly honest. Well, first of all, we're not in the jungle. It was in dry and desiccated hills. <laughs> yeah. Um, Taken over by an evil god. Well, that's that's a gigantic spoiler in a sense. Um, the the falling in love is fine. Uh, best possessed man begins to use magic music. So again, more spoiler. The other walks away. Walks away from what? That's that's bad. That's bad sentence structure. But the pair must duel in the end. Well, that's true. Yeah, I could do this summary much, much, much better. Um, actually, um, actually, if you if you look on the Goodreads page, our one of our co-podcasters julie davis actually had read this and and reviewed it and actually has a, a a better summary oh let's hear that okay so uh no actually oh, that's actually the same same thing uh, actually crap uh, this is a very enjoyable combination of lost world of crappy monsters hgls and of course a romance i especially like the fact that the people who believe the supernatural reality the fastest are irish they're used to the celtic gods and tales naturally and then she goes on to talk about the summary we just saw, which just adds in publication eight. This is, re- yeah, this is a terrible summary. I, yes, there are two adventurers, and yeah, other I than see, that, uh, Brian was commenting on that. Um, so uh, I don't think this book is well known, given that you know, the some of the few, very few commenters are people I know. <laughs> 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 it's like not well read enough. Um, and I'm not sure why she's forgotten exactly. Maybe there's just no particular champion. Um, I, 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 I think I think it's a matter of she's in the churn of a lot of this pulp stuff. I I didn't read it because I don't go to the websites, but I noticed um, the puppy the the rabbit puppies website had uh, talked about the book. Mm, but yeah, I, I I was not going to go there and read what they had to say under any circumstances, but. A, but I guess they went to there because, you know, the whole Lovecraft connection. Uh, did you oh, say they, rabid they, puppies rather than sad puppies? The, the, yeah. the, 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 yes, the rabid puppies okay. are the more virile form of the sad puppies. Yes, <laughs> the, it was on the uh, publishing house, uh, Castilla. Yes. Um, yeah, I, it, and, yeah. And it was, uh, what surprised me was it was, uh, it was a light, quick, but very praising review. Right? Oh, this was fun. That was, you know, kind of the whole. Um, and that surprised me. I thought. You know, because of the politics of, of these guys, that they would have dismissed it by being by a woman or or whatever. But um, but they just no, something liked it. I, I I I'm so out of the loop. All I know is um, is this was a is a a pretty fun book. I would say undisciplined, 
but uh, I spend so much time thinking about like what does this mean? Because like <laughs> what'll happen is they they come into the they come into the out of the desert they find the oasis house right mm-hmm. and then he says and it it's like eden oh except it doesn't have a and then there's a snake right and like oh coatl coatl means snake right quetzalcoatl aha this is foreshadowing i think that it wasn't like that well planned out like even though it's perfect i think it's not that well planned out i think she was she was it was almost because it was serialized so heavily that's why it feels so disjointed but it, yeah. it, you know, like it may have been written, you know, okay, I sold the first, uh, first uh, chapter, and now I have to write the rest of them, and that's why it feels so like fast-paced. And then, whoa, 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 we're changing directions because she like overshot <laughs> her point or something. But um, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about how much she knew about about the Aztec mythology is like so hard to get in so hard to understand once you're in it you're like waiting around and everything doesn't make sense and it's really interesting what what do you guys know about Aztec mythology because it it plays a central role here I think my my first uh, connection to Aztec mythology was the first edition deities and demigods holding it in my hand right now Holding, holding in your hand from, from from Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I mean, I've come across some some uh, fiction and whatnot that tie, tries to tie tie in with Aztec mythology one way or the other. There's a famous Doctor Who serial called The Aztecs. It's like mm-hmm. like the fourth or fifth episode in the entire series where Numbers issues uh, six serial six. Six. Aha. See, I was right. Um, mm-hmm. So where where the Doctor and his companions wind up going to. 14th century Tenochtitlan, and and there's a thread of changing history. And the Doctor absolutely, positively doesn't want them to change history because that would screw things up in the future. And there's the whole tension between, well, can you should you change history if you can and for the better, and if not, why not? And then of course the whole weird subplot of the Doctor getting engaged to be married because he shares a cup of hot chocolate with a woman, which is, I think, hilarious. <laughs> it's the look on Hartnell's doctor's face. And, just, and like, now we are to be engaged. It's like, excuse me, madam. <laughs> no, no, that it, it, it is a classic episode. It, it is, it is unfortunately more, more pointing to the sad fact that we don't have more Hartnell episodes survive. Um, more modern takes on the Aztecs. Um, have, either, um, have either you ever, uh, any of this three, you actually, read uh, Elliot de Bernard? I, I, I follow her yeah. on Twitter, but no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she has a series of, yeah, she has a series. Well, she, well, there's a couple, though. There's a couple here. She has a, she has an altered history where the Aztecs kind of survive and that informs her space opera in the future because the Chinese wind up help colon surviving and uh, helping raise up the Aztecs. And so the world is a little more yeah. balanced. There's also a series. What's um, there's also her servant of the underworld series, which is set in pre contact Mexico, where she basically has a priest of a God solve murder mysteries in Tenochtitlan. Yes, there, there is, there, that is strange and as amazing as you might think it is. And she goes really deep into <laughs> getting into the mindset of what is it like to be 
the priest of a god in Aztec, Mexico, having mm-hmm. to do your job and also having to deal with the regular the dealing with this problem that you've been dropped in your lap again and again. They're, it's it's early. Uh, they but our her novels have gotten even better since, but they're really worth out checking checking out. Sounds good. I've enjoyed the stories. Um, no, I, you know, Aztec stuff shows up yeah, in weird ways in uh, in uh, fantastic literature. I mean, it's uh, you know always been there as a as a current, um, and it appears in all kinds of different ways. I, I haven't done a, a serious scholarly study of it, but I'd, I'd be curious to see, for example, how it uh, appears as a kind of backstory to uh, Mexican history. Um, you know, how does it? How is it shaped that way? Is it a? Uh, um, how does it reflect, say, attitudes towards um, towards Mexico and, and in general the uh, Spanish speaking world? Um, yeah, it pops up in weird places like the uh, uh, the really really great Grant Morrison uh, comic book series, The Invisibles. One of the uh, protagonists is uh, that's her origin. Um, she's a uh, a trans woman who uh, comes from uh, Mexico and. Uh, uses well i don't want to say if you haven't read it i it's an extraordinary book which i really recommend and she's a great character um but even shows up in 1970s sci-fi horror movies i promised you guys <laughs> i would mention this but there's mm-hmm. the great uh larry cohn movie q yes uh, yes which uh you know has a uh, kessel Cottle <laughs> living in a new york city skyscraper mm-hmm. and uh cops the trying to building, right yes Yes, and uh, and there's a, a criminal who gets to find out about it. That's not the craziest one, though. My favorite Larry Cohen movie is God Told Me To, which is one of the closest things to a Philip K. Dick movie based wow. on a book that was ever written. Um, <laughs> it's it's barking mad, and uh, it's 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 a delight, low budget, but uh, but Q shows up. Um, that's one. So that's in the seventies. But more recently, I'd wonder. I'd like to ask Amy H. Sturgis to see uh, if if she has a good track on this, based based on her uh, her love of not just science fiction and fantasy, but also of uh, uh, First Nation uh, genre writing. I uh, I want to go back to that um, Doctor Who episode for a minute. One of one of the things that I really like about it is it it, it, it it's I don't uh, I don't have the chronology perfect, but the first episode of Doctor Who. Uh, they, we meet the doctor, his granddaughter, the, the two teachers, and Mm -hmm. then pretty much as soon as that happens, they all sneak, somehow sneak into the TARDIS and go back in time, 10,000, 10,000 BC or 100,000. Yeah. They go back to caveman, caveman days. Right. And, and that's, it's like, um, it's like the reversal of the first, uh, time machine story ever, the time machine, right? Where they go back in time, and then they go the very next episode. They go forward in time to the Daleks, right, yep. uh, in another planet, and beautiful allegory, um, giving us like this is what <laughs> nuclear war gets you guys. Um, you want this? You want to live in a box like that? Be a mutant? Uh, have no arms and legs? Right? Wow. Um, and then there's I, I think there's a few there, other stories. There's there's a there's a bottle episode where the tires might go, blow up. Okay. Then, then, then there's the lost Marco Polo, sadly and tragically. Right. That, then we go to the future again to another alien planet. Keys or something. Keys of Paranus, and then we have the Aztecs. Right. And what I love so much about the Aztecs is we're dropped down into the middle of what is essentially an alien culture. I'd never heard of the Aztecs before I saw that serial. 
Um, and we get from the from the teachers, right, a description, especially um, the woman. I can't remember her name. Barbara. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, she gives a description of what the Aztec culture was like, um, explaining, you know, yes, um, <laughs> episodes called Temple of Evil. Right. And then we get a description. Oh, yes, they, they do human sacrifices, but they also have lots of positive aspects to their culture. And I didn't notice it at the time, but I'm rewatching it um, just, yes, last night. I noticed that um, the doctor is the, the man, is, the, the male teacher is shuffled off to, uh, to become a warrior. And he ends up dressed in a, a Quetzalcoatl costume, actually. Right with the the beak um, and the feathers and all that, um, and then the doctor is shuffled off to a garden for the retirees, and anybody age 52 in their society or, or older spends their day in this garden, and it's like wow, <laughs> it's a retirement at age 52. That's pretty great. And then you know they have they they spend a lot of time cultivating their flowers. And it's like, oh, yes, but there are a lot of positive aspects of it. Meanwhile, in the upper uh, reaches of the uh, the priesthood, all sorts of horrible things are afoot. So what I love about it is it is it drops you down into the middle of a culture and doesn't give you a value judgment, right? The doctor has one kind of value judgment, and uh, Barbara has another. She says, you know, we, we can save these people from Cortez. Um, if, if Cortez, like, I, I don't think that that would have stopped him, but <laughs> just the point is, is it, it's amazing. I, I was profoundly, um, looking back, I was profoundly affected by it. I, I said, I need to go to Mexico and, and look at this stuff for myself. I went to Mexico, went to Guatemala and Belize, uh, looking at all these places and reading about it, all the archaeology about it, but, um, more importantly, Quetzalcoatl has 400 hit points, which is more than <laughs> all of all of the the other uh, Central American deities in this book, uh, except for uh, Tetzalpoca, uh, the the jaguar sun god. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty good. And he has infinite movement, which is much more than you know, Kamaxtli and uh, Kamotsk and all them. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, Jesse! You Sorry. You did. No, I, I kind of want to go back to the book now. Yeah, please. Um, I, I guess one one historical facet of this that really interested me was the uh, um, the Irish aspect, mm-hmm. and that's um, I mean, um, you know, uh, Julie mentioned that it's fun to see this evocation of the Irish being more spiritual or more open to the supernatural than anybody else. Um, but this is interesting for a few reasons. Uh, historically, one is that, um, as readers of Lovecraft know, um, in this period, uh, the Irish were not popular in the U.S. And in fact, in nineteen in nineteen twenties, uh, Congress passes a uh, immigration restriction law, which um, is aimed in part at uh, at, at Celts. Um, you know, it's so having having the Irish be heroes. Uh, I mean, real heroes. I mean, over and over again, uh, we're told that you know our our boy is extra big, extra strong, extra smart, extra funny. Um, I mean, that's that's a that's a that's a 
that's not a, a casual move. That's a, that's a pretty uh, a pretty positive one. Mm-hmm. And then you know, and then a minor character, but the fun one is uh, you know a stereotype of uh, American uh, Northeast culture, which is the Irish cop. Uh, and he's the you know tough guy, always willing to shoot things, um, sarcastic. Um, that's a stereotype in part because uh, being a cop was one job that the Irish kind of made uh, their own, that, that it was acceptable um, when they couldn't get other jobs as well. So I, I, that was an interesting political gesture, which uh, I really applaud. Yeah, uh, the, the Celtic uh, hero, right, that's something Howard championed as well, you know, being uh, right. playing up that part of his his own yeah. identity and um we actually just did a book on the podcast uh about two irish uh folks in oh was it maybe not no she, it's an irish author uh, dorothy mccardle um mm. with um sort of playing up the uh the the celtic connection to all things bogies i i, I there, there's some great lines describing how's the cop the, the disbelieving cop described all the uh, appearances later on it's like it wasn't bog- boggarts and something but it was something like that <clears throat> bugaboos oh. bugaboos right yeah yes <laughs> right and, and, uh, and you, know, you have to imagine oftentimes i think he's understated you know there's the scene where uh, our our nordic character because he's always described as the nordic character right says no you can't shoot that bullets won't work you know, just imagine <laughs> his expression like yeah right yeah um and he's what, always what, what do you make of the whole Sven Bjorsen and his wife Astrid and that weird Norwegian Scandinavian element to the the Oasis? I was uh, I was impressed by that because it it starts off as a leading theme and then falls behind mm-hmm. uh, un, until uh, until he comes back and even when he comes back he's 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 belated. Um, but you know you, you do get this part. If you think about the various racial thinkings at the time, r- racial ways of thinking that you know the Norse are the ideal, right? This is the uh, um, the upright people who are uh, strong, pure, uh, virile, um, and this shows up in the 30s and 40s. The Nazis will idolize these guys as well. Um, but and this is a big deal for Lovecraft. You know, Lovecraft mentions uh, how much he he respects the Scandinavians, um, and so uh, that surprised me to find these guys in um in mexico um and then they're talked up i mean he's he's uh described as in very powerful terms and then you get shoved to one side which which uh, it was interesting i I was a little wrong-footed by that yeah what what would you guys think go for it mr jimmoon i can see you breathing in (laughs) (laughs) well i think partly it's it's down to this sort of the strange pacing she has of that. Um, one of the things I found reading in chapters is I, I often found that the focus of the story was, it was almost like a kaleidoscope of we're doing this, we're doing this. And suddenly mm. whoop, we're over there with them, with them. And then we're, we're back somewhere else with somebody else. And I think I found it, I think it might've been more to the fact that it was written serial sort of style. And it's kind of, Mm, I yeah. think at some point the plot was getting away from her. <laughs> yeah. And then suddenly it's kind of near the end. It's kind of, Oh yes, there's those guys. I better bring them back. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can see the, the structure is there. You know, the three parts um, mm. are there, but uh, 
Um, and I, I, I liked how a lot of the chapters ended on the classic cliffhanger dramatic modes. You know, ah, oh, he's trapped and there's a monster coming. Ah, oh, what next? You know, that was that was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe, yeah, maybe she had something else planned for our our, our Viking hero. Well, I I think that the setup uh, and it, it, it I keep going back to because I I think it's it is incredibly striking and has that great trope. But um, Lapalan, right? So this is a real place in the mythology. Um. It means the place of black and red color. Legendary place off the Gulf Coast of Mexico where Quetzalcoatl went on his flight from Tolan in order to burn himself and change into the Morning Star. And it's in a particular codex. Um, The fact that these are super Nordic folks in the middle of the Mexican uh, desert oasis sort of place is interesting. But the fact that uh, that little girl, what does she say? Um, red man good, brown man bad. You remember that part? The little girl. No. Oh, when, when they first meet and right. you, you dyed your yeah. hair red. Right. You, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm. So uh, I was like, what's going on here? And then I'm, I, I'm, and then thinking about uh, this, the legend of. Uh, and I, I looked into this. The you know the legend of Cortez being the reincarnation of Quetzalcoatl. You guys know about this? Yeah. I, yeah. 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 So this it seems to be only on the Spanish side. The, there's no evidence. Uh, well, not much good evidence um, from the from what little Aztec records we have of them surviving. Um, there's not much evidence that Cortez, uh, they really thought this. Uh, certainly they acted certain ways towards Cortez and uh, Montezuma did, that is. But the idea that Montezuma didn't act to, uh, you know, to squish the the invaders right away. Well, well, well I want to, I want to, I want to, uh, Step on, step in on that because one of the reasons why he didn't was because, and Cortez doesn't get enough credit for this. Cortez was a relatively canny political operator. Once he landed yeah. in, in Mexico and he realized there was a lot of different subjugated and resentfully dominated polities under the Aztecs, he started right. banding with them. I mean, most of his force was non. Spanish by the right. end. He, I mean, he, was ba- right. he, he basically caused a revolution or uprising against Montezuma, and he, Cortez doesn't get enough credit. I mean, oh yeah, Spanish guns, Spanish disease, Spanish horses, but also because Cortez saw the political situation and thought, I can knock over these guys. No one likes the Aztecs. They'll band with me, and they did. Yeah. So Montezuma couldn't squish him even if he really wanted to. I mean, now yeah. Pizarro no, no, getting off topic. Pizarro was a case of why the heck? Yep, yeah, Pizarro stepped in the middle of a civil war and he didn't have anybody with him. And it was only because there was a middle of a civil war that he was able to conquer the Incas. Otherwise, the Incas could smash them like uh, right. flies because they had nobody on their side. It's just that they were fighting each other and he just, they just, mm. they stepped into that power gap. But Cortez just got the. Got the uh, oppressed locals on his side to help knock off Montezuma. Well, the, the, yeah, well good point. I mean, it reminds me in a way of uh, the British uh, and to a lesser extent the French and Portuguese in India. Yep, um, exactly. You know, yeah, exactly. Not, not a case of Mongol style conquest, but of uh, playing local forces against each other. Mm-hmm. 
I, I just I I think it's interesting because you know Cortez is uh, the 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 record seems to be that Cortez was reporting what he said they believed about him rather than um, mm-hmm. what the Aztecs believed. But the important part is uh, Bennett or Stevens would have been aware of this. Uh, it seems to me she's super familiar with all of this, so she must have been reading some book about it. Um, she, it really it strikes me like I was reading a terrible short story the other day. It's like, yeah, it, it was exactly what you know. If it's set in two small towns that don't exi- that don't exist, and and the facts in between them are are all made up, then the story's no good. <laughs> Unless it's all like. You know, it the research has been done. In this case, I think she did a ton of research and and or had some personal experience of this. You you, you know her husband um, who died. Um, I I don't know if it was on an expedition. Was an explorer and uh, um, journalist. So you know goes off to the jungle and, and she seemed to. I mean, based on the relationships of the women and the men in here, it seems like. She was pretty into it. I, I found it like just thinking about the about the dom, the domestic spheres going on in this book. You know, every time there was a the some sort of event in a household uh, and uh, going through doorways. There's a lot of that. That's it's. I mean, it's yeah. not it's yeah. not as un, it's not as well developed as I'd kind of like. But she's she's pointing in that direction. There's a lot of doorway stuff. You notice that the battle of the doorway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking liminal, 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 liminal. But totally. to go, go back to something, something uh, the two of you were saying, um, which is really interesting in terms of again wrong-footing expectations. Uh, the one of the classic lost world or lost people uh, stories is to have the European or Western explorer find them and then take them over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we get to this point where we have our two protagonists. And they stumble into and exacerbate a civil war, and then they lose. Mm-hmm. You know that that could have been the Cortez moment, mm-hmm. uh, where one of them. You know, and we already have. You know, I thought it was almost a retelling in a certain sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you have the attractive young woman, um, yeah. so we could have you know the romance plot right there. Okay, and they could take over. Fine. Um, you know, I was waiting for mention of plague to happen, and mm-hmm. well, instead, yeah, they one of them gets booted out. If you'll excuse the pun, <laughs> and the other one gets trapped, and ends up working as a you know equivalent of a scullery maid. Um, I mean that's that's pretty extraordinary. Um, and not until the very end, the last third of the book, do we get uh, a sense of something else going on. But the something else isn't happy conquest. You know, basically the um, boots manages to help destroy the entire place. As far as we can tell, it's his. Mm-hmm. It's his pretty note. unclear. Yeah, and he yanks out of it some, you know, his stuff. So he he loots it. But this isn't the, this isn't the triumphant colonial narrative. This isn't a, what's the Kipling uh, novel that turned into a fun movie? Um, Men who would be man who would be king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. So there, there, there's there's a lot there's a lot about gold, but uh, I want to know about the white hounds because um, that was part of what sold me on the book. I was like, ooh, White Hounds. What's that about? Why? Why does that... Why I don't that know. Well, I was thinking, like... 
hound's right? It's not all white hound. If it was all white hound, you know, it's like the hound of the Baskervilles or something, right? It's it's a it's a one off. But I was thinking, it, it, it there's a lot about color in here, and you know, the fact that Talan Talan is the place of black and red, right? Is that's the color of the guy's hairs, right? Um, it's the it's a, it's about the skin color of the of the household it's about the natives outside did the word greaser come up in this book yes i think that was in yes, there right yeah. i read a yes. terrible hp lovecraft uh revision i can't believe how bad it was uh, you can see like he wrote like very little of it um mm. uh, and it was set in mexico on a train it's called the electric executioner oh you god you cannot believe how bad yeah. the story is i could i like seriously that's what's out like it's like the guy can't write at all it's just terrible anyways um almost nothing of it is hp lovecraft uh, i'm 99.999 percent sure um but uh, yeah it used the word greaser and it, it was it was all about you know the the whites uh, the white skin dominating the the brown skin and and the red skin Ugh. As, and it so this is like actually kind of refreshing in because it, it, it yeah greaser got used but it wasn't like the it wasn't all about race there's certainly racial stuff in here but more importantly like i think there's some sort of metaphor going on like with the disease the, are the hounds the disease what are the mushroom things going what what's what's with uh, the squishy things outside once the rain comes what's going on well, when I when I when I started when I started listening to this and in the first section when we see the hounds and we see those beings, I mean I knew this was supposed to be Aztec flavored, but with like with the Nordic, with with the Nordic Bjornsson and his wife, I kept I kept wanting and and our and our protagonist O'Hara, I kept wanting to think wild hunt in Celtic mythology, yep. but it doesn't quite yeah. go there. I mean, no, it doesn't. She's 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 taking ideas from that, but she's, <laughs> that, but I mean when we get to the second and third sections when we get to the whole Dr. Moreau and creating these beasts, it moves away from that. But I kept wanting to think elves and wild hunt and and that sort that sort of thing. I mean I think she's borrowing some imagery, but mm-hmm. in the in the in the end the what the hounds represent, um, that's a good question. I only know if she knows because I mean this whole serial form is like, okay, I gotta go come up with another chapter. We'll do this next, right? <laughs> I, I, I mean, seriously, from from yeah. a structural standpoint, this novel isn't quite the sum of its parts, which no. which is sad. And I really like the first section because that's my that's my favorite section. Like Lost World, Strange City. I'm thinking, okay, H. H. Riker Haggard, Jack Vance, that sort of weird pla- weird place in the corner of the world that we've never seen before. And then I was almost disappointed for a while when we got back to the East Coast. Like, oh, really? We're gonna we're gonna have a domestic problem. We're gonna have a yep. domestic drama, and and then when supernatural things started happening, we started to realize who's in that house and why, and th- then things perked up for me. But I was disappointed for a chunk of this novel that we'd left the lost city, and apparently the supernatural stuff. Fine. It's like, wait a minute, we're not just gonna have this thing about this guy and his sister and his we, for the rest of this book, are we? Luckily, we didn't. But yeah. So a really nice uh, in the original PDF, um, the introductory, uh, I don't know, editorial introduction is actually a, a much better intro to the novel probably than 
and the other one. Listen to this. In Tlapalan, lost city of an ancient race, lay the black stone of evil incarnate. And then a man from the outside world became the agent of its awful power. I think that's actually a fairly good a sort of premise starter. That's much, that's much better than, mm. yeah, the one on Goodreads. And it also makes it feel like a lot more um, Robert E. Howardy um, than, uh, I don't know, Ed, Edgar Rice Burrowsy. Which it's interesting because you know people say she's that she was uh, originator of dark fantasy or something like that. I, I'm not sure that th- this isn't really dark fantasy ex- exactly, but it is sort of in that direction, isn't it? Well, that was one. That quote is referring to one book, which I, I haven't read, but I'm guessing was you know trying to make a case for the importance of this author. And I, mm-hmm. I, I don't see this as as very dark fantasy. I mean, no. again, it feels. It feels more like uh, adventure pulp, and uh, mm-hmm. again, more you know, more more Tim Powers, uh, especially the early stuff. Um, mm-hmm. mm. or, or or the second and third parts feel a little bit more like the dom- domestic supernatural stuff of Fritz Leiber. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good comparison. Yeah, like uh, Conjure Wife, or uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. Well, I have to say, yeah, the, the supernatural intrudes upon modern America, sort of thing. Chapter six: The Black Eidolon. Ooh, that sounds good. I and then like, oh, okay. <laughs> it wasn't where I, it wasn't exactly where I thought it was going, but um, I I can't say it was terrible. I I, I can't say it was the best. I I think it I think it really suffered from being a serial more than anything else. Yeah, the, the chapters seem to be very unevenly um, constructed. Not not in terms of the writing, but in terms of length. Mm-hmm. You'd have one that was really long, and then you get one that literally is five paragraphs. Right. <laughs> Whoa, what happened there? <laughs> so, I, you know, I think that was obviously she had so much space and for the serialization, and so some chapters are quite small, then others are very long, which is kind of weird. Yeah, and it, it all going back to the like always going back to the bungalow and the veranda, um, <laughs> like um, that's also in the, that other story I'm reading, the elf trap. Um, it, it, being a wife, right? Being a wife means being in the home, that domestic job with the typewriter. You know, Philip K. Dick's characters are always you know hanging out in Southern California for a reason. Because <laughs> um, he was, right. Um, but I don't know how much travel she really did, but she certainly traveled in her mind, and she does a pretty good job of conjuring up at least parts of the, uh, uh, like, like just thinking about how you you have this house and then suddenly it's a swamp. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like that's it, there's something meta about it. it uh, there's something meta about everything she does that I've read. It's pretty cool. Well, I, Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say I do want to read more. Um, I'm wondering if one reason for her um, uh, relative obscurity might be that the, uh, from what you all have described and from what little I've read about her other pieces, that they're too uh, diverse, that they're different genres. I think that that and, might be it. Terms. I mean, and, if, and if she isn't, she she isn't like that's the science fiction story she wrote. It's a comedy. It's it it. it, it 
it's I mean it's not jokes exactly, but she's winking at us the whole time, and you know she she it's it's a fe- boldly feminist piece, but it's also making fun of it, right? And and I don't think that that leads to like um, people seem to take the serious stuff, you know, like Fahrenheit four five one has gravitas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what Margaret Atwood's *The Handmaid's Tale* has gravitas um, when because they're dystopic, right? They're they're but when you're being winked at, nudged and and played with, that uh, people don't seem to take it as um, as serious. And, and, but it's it's also a matter of it's difficult to do comedy well, be it science fiction or otherwise. I mean. What's what's the best science fiction comedy of all time? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, typically. Yeah, right. And can you think of another? Uh, Harry Harrison. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, how many people are going to think of Harry Harrison after thinking? Everyone's going to think right. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. No yeah. one's. I mean, Harry Harrison, John Scalzi. I mean, there's yeah. there's a. I mean, the drop off between Hitchhikers and the next level is pretty steep and. And, and even when people try to do comedy, I mean, I've read a couple comedic science fiction novels in the last year and change, and one was okay, and the other just really, really came off badly for me. It's like, why am I reading? I'm I'm going to finish reading this, and I actually actually turned out I actually read that three years ago, and I wrote a relatively negative, really scathing <laughs> review of it. But it was by an author who'd written other stuff I liked, and then they tried to say comedy, and it fell absolutely flat. It's yeah. like mm. it's it's not easy to do comedy, and that's why it doesn't survive, and why it's made. Well, this one I mean, isn't, under- isn't a comedy. Um, no, no, but, but, but yeah, uh, the fact that the other one is, I mean, and is I, I I'm overstating it by saying it's a comedy. It's comedic, right? Like the fact that she is playing with our expectations. Um, I don't think she's playing with our... Well, maybe she is playing with our expectations in this as well, but um, it did not go where I thought it was going. Well, no. speaking speaking of going, uh, friends, I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time. And I, I'm going to need to uh, head out um, to... Um, I don't mean to kill the conversation. No, I, I think we're closing closing towards our end. Yeah. We're, we're heading towards the doorway. Yes. <laughs> we, 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 we are leaving Tlapalon. Back to domestic concerns. <laughs> Um, I just one one last, not a question, but kind of uh, ill-formed thought to to mention. Um, some of the power of of Dracula comes from the way that it's Dracula invading Britain. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he puts his soil in in English soil, mm-hmm. uh, and then mixes his blood with uh, prime English blood. <clears throat> and and so there's a there's a bit of that in this book mm-hmm. where we we have the invasion of somewhere in the east coast. Um, the town is named after a water spirit, which I always find right. Interesting. Yes, I mean, yes. But but then ah, but, but we have ancient yes, uh, and we have ancient Mexican deities and monsters invading, um, and so there's. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much that thrills readers today, but that must have been more than a little unsettling. In uh, what's what's the year of this? Nineteen eighteen. Nineteen eighteen. So you know, last year of the Great War. Um, when people are thinking about invasion, um, yep. you know, this must have been, uh, you know, that must have been a, a real punch to, to see that happening, especially having it happen in a, a domestic space. 
no doubt. And especially far away from anywhere near the Mexican border. Oh, no, they're here in our good New England. Right, yeah. right, right, right. You know, it's not in Texas. It's uh, somewhere in the East Coast, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, what about Rhodes? <laughs> Rhodes is in here, too, and that, that wouldn't have been left out. I mean, it's not... Uh, yeah. But the, just the name is... Um, yeah, that was an interesting choice. Uh, that really that, that caught me up. I mean, uh, Rhodes is better known for uh, imperialism in, in Africa. Right. Um, yeah, but at, actually, the to- at the time, he was a hero. I mean, yes, now, that, now now we see the horribleness of his plans. But at the time, he is considered to be like bringing mm-hmm. civilization to Africa sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, well, the Rhodes Scholarship. Um, and then, you know, naming the country Rhodesia. Um, in fact, there's a wonderful, dark... John Crowley. Yes. Novella. Great work of time, isn't it? Oh my gosh. I, oh yeah. yeah. That's a really good, yeah. Again, yeah. Which rehabilitates Rhodes kind of sort of weirdly. It's, it's an, it's an alternate history. Um, where, well, which, wait, where, well, you know, can you call yeah. it history? It's kind no. of like history kind of shifting and changing. So there's yeah. no one history because I mean, because the history of that world keeps shifting as it gets changed around. So, so the, the, I, I don't want to, I don't want to. I, don't I mean know. To spoil it in terms of plot, but also because it's such a beautifully, meticulously constructed story. But uh, we have a twenty. We have a right around now. We have a um, a, a world which is dominated by Imperial Britain. Um, and it's a, it's a full steampunk utopia um, because they've gone back in time and meddled with uh, the past. Um, but one problem is that that starts altering the nature of reality in ways that uh, aren't quite expected. And so one of the questions is what to do about roads. If you haven't read, I, I we're, we're being, interesting. Paul and I are being kind of elliptical about it because it's Crowley is a gorgeous writer and this is a really haunting story. There's some scenes in there that are just chilling. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of unreservedly recommend him, you know, flat out to anybody. Um, but this is, this is a really neat one. It turns on roads. Hmm. Um, so I sadly kind of, don't think there's an audio book. Otherwise we could do it for the podcast. Hmm. I think I think I know a guy named Jim Moon who. Would be- <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'd have to get you to get connected with uh, the right people to make that happen. But yeah, it could be done. <laughs> All, All right. right. Uh, well, if we lose Brian, I still want to. I have a question. Um, what, what what's up with Green Gables? That so Anna Green Gables is 1908. It was a big smash. Is she just right. like throwing everything in? It's like everything in the kitchen sink in this book. Well, what's the what's the role of Green Gables in this? Can you can you? I'm not sure. I mean, the thing is, is I was thinking there was a lot of parallels with, um, like, le- first we've got we've got these got two guys coming out of the desert. And then um, we get that. Uh, I think uh, Jim Moon called this out. You know, the the five paragraph chapter, right? Chapter twenty twenty four, a lonely traveler. Across the rough ground, an empty field two miles beyond Undine, a dark figure stumbled and panted beneath the unheeding stars. So we've got actually a reversal of the of that first scene, right? Where you've got two guys coming out of the desert in the daytime, um, in in the um, full heat of the sun. Here you've got one guy coming out of the night, in not the desert, but in in the I don't know New England countryside. There's something going on there, but I'm not sure what it is exactly. Why is it called Green Gables? Is is she is she Anne? <laughs> or is our heroine Anne? 
Mm, I don't know. It's weird, right? I, th- I think you might be right. It is a whole matter of let's throw the kitchen sink in. And I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, the novel is fascinating in that. Yeah, just like let's put this in, let's put this in. I think in. it really needs some like if it somebody did like why is Undine just called out randomly? Is it random? Well, I don't know. With sort of having that town name and also having these hounds, it does sort of. I think there is sort of a weird balance between. On one hand, you have kind of. Aztec and their mythology, but you've yeah. got the Irish and the Celtic, and yeah, um, it's almost uh, it seems to tie to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if Lovecraft had written about this, he he would have really taken it a task over her structuring because mm. he was a huge structuralist to the point, you know, even the, the kind of punctuation mattered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think he would have praised her for the imagination and the eclectic nature of it because you know she's doing everything that he set out to do is to take things that felt authentic but then create like a new mythology from an old and make something that was tired and cliched and to make it you know disconcerting and unfamiliar mm-hmm. and i mean certainly you know you know it lulls in the middle but when you get get to the to the big showdown at the at the uh, compound of uh, Dr. Reed. And, you know, you have the real that he's an avatar of an evil god, and yet he's also this super mad scientist, growing fungus creatures that are shaped by his thoughts. I mean, that's fantastic mm-hmm. stuff. And some of the descriptions of the creatures and just the setting and this recreated, you know, so albino marsh, it's, you know, it's fantastic stuff. Mm-hmm. I really love the, uh, the his description of, of shaping it from scratch, how the thing becomes kind of amorphous, and then these two little dots appear of eyes. And there's a red fleck at the center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was gorgeous. And there's, uh, there's the match with the gold, too, right? So well, there's a scene where we've got a guy sitting in a, in a gold chair looking around the swamp all around him saying, huh, I'm in a swamp. And then later on, um, what's the what's the... O'Hara or one of the cops says, um, uh, I wouldn't take any of that gold. Um, and I wouldn't melt it down because it, and you know, change its shape. And somebody says something along the lines of, uh, yeah, I, you see it in that shape, but, uh, that's, it could have been any shape. I'm just using that as a traditional form. And maybe that is something, a reflection of, you know, the fact that what was what's the line what's the the title of the book is citadel of fear but isn't there a line about saying that it could have been another title or at least a, it could have been another way of describing this place yeah and none of them are citadel of fear no fortress of yeah. fear is is here um but but it, it, it i maybe it has something to do with the fact that like that's one of the problems with you know trying to get a hold of the mythology of of the Aztecs is, you know, he's not just one god. He's not just one thing, right? When you think about Thor, he's got a hammer. He's got, you know, maybe a winged helmet. Runs around. He's got a brother. But Quetzalcoatl is nothing like that, right? He's a snake. He's a serpent. He's a white guy. He's, you know, um, he's also a twin. There's all sorts of different, and he's a wind god, but he's also the god of rain. But also Jesse, not. Do, 
Do you know, is, is this uh, complexity due to um, the nature of learning about that because of the, of the collapse of Aztec civilization? I don't, I don't, I don't think, I think it's just, it's so different, right? It's, it, uh, and maybe, you know, like, like trying to understand uh, any other culture that's very different from a European, like European culture is pretty monolithic in a certain sense, right? Like from, you know, Northern Britain down to the bottom right hand corner of, of uh, Europe, it's pretty much, you know, everybody's got an equivalent God, right? But they're all sort of the, uh, no, you know, the, the Norns of 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 uh, bottom right hand corner are pretty much represented in the top left hand corner. They just have different names, and there are variations certainly. But it's been blending together for so long, and trading together for so long that, you know, you can you can even if they're not parallel, like you know, Odin and Zeus are not the same guy. But, but the Romans said, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the same people. You're you're worshiping the same gods as us. That that sort of cultural blending it started so long for ago, a long so time. It and like, it looks and then, like, yeah, it looks well, like even though it's not. I guess um, w- without without talking about Cold War 2.0 that's now settling across Europe, <laughs> I, I would say if you look at Greek and Roman mythology, mm-hmm. it's actually this diverse." Because it does, it is. You're right. It's just we've we've homogenized it a bit and ignored a lot of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah because could, because, di- because different areas would have different versions of the same Greek mm-hmm. or Roman myth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. And, I, and not to yeah. mention two different names for all of them because of uh, Latin and Greek. Um, yeah. Or yeah. just Pallas Athena, right? Pallas, Pallas right. was a goddess, and Athena was a goddess, and Athena ate Pallas, right? Now she's well, Pallas Athena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and plus, also, plus you have a historical divergence as well as at different periods uh-huh. in, in classical times, different gods were worshipped more. Yep. Which is why Pan was originally the god of song and then it became Apollo when the cult of Pan declined mm-hmm. in popularity. Yep. And then a myth appears of how Pan stole <laughs> that particular and, area of divine influence from Pan. Exactly. And then if you're Rome and you decide to start turning this into a giant uh, imperial uh, cultural artifact, then naturally, um, you know, the main god becomes so much more important and more powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the uh, Christians take this up and they have the weird, you know, kind of constant problem semi-appropriating all the classical mythology. Then you have the regional variations. I mean, you've got uh, Athens. So, you know, Theseus is their big hero. So you've got that and different, you know, if you work your way around the Hellenic world, you get different emphases. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a boatload of time. Yeah. Like a thousand years. I mean, that's... But we're used to it. Like, I, like the, the, the fact that we can name, you know, a half dozen or a dozen stories with, with Aztec mythology in it is kind of pathetic compared to how many we can name with with European oh. mythology, and I think that that unfamiliarity um, makes us confused because it is also, incredibly dense, but, right? But but think that that you know, uh, Greco-Roman culture is still, I mean, not only conquered the Mediterranean and the, and the area around it, but also was so enormously influential even after it got replaced by uh, by Christianity and, and feudalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason the U.S. one of our two houses the Senate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas the the Aztecs were nearly exterminated, um, and their and their culture blotted out, um, and, and so that's uh, you know that's that's a crude way of putting it, but it's a 
that's a huge. There's a, there's a, an interesting book by uh, Roberto Colasso called The Tale of Cadmus and Harmony. I think I think I have the title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You no, know, it's the Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony. Oh, that's a brilliant yeah. book. And it's him mostly just working through Greek and Roman mythology and like teasing out this version of the tale versus this version of the tale versus this version, and it's a uh, um, it's a lot it's of fun. Once, yeah, running from one story to another to another, and, and go eventually winding up back at where he started, which is which I right. thought was amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a sign of a book lover. Um, but um, well, thank you for uh, for bringing this to our attention. This was mm-hmm. a, a fun book and a, a nice piece of genre history and uh, and a riot to read too. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I I hope we can get to another Francis Stevens because. Uh, she even even if the in the polish is not there you know the structure you can the see she's are. bursting with intelligence and, yeah. and ideas right i mean it's it's chock full yeah this has been the sff audio podcast please join us at www.sffaudio.com <laughs> Paul, I, I, I want I want recommendations of uh, horror themed computer games to play when you can. Uh, horror themed horror is not really my uh, metier. Um, darkest uh, Dungeon, Dark Darkest Dungeon, obviously. Uh, there's uh, one called Barrow Hill, and a series called Darkfall, and one called The Lost Crown, which are all kind of they're, they're quite old school, sort of like Mist style. Uh, adventure games uh, rather than running and shooting but they are some of the creepiest games I've ever played <laughs> alright I've got Barrow Hill what was the other two that you had uh, uh, Dark Souls and... oh yeah but that's impossible right uh, oh no it's not Dark Souls hang on I'll just let me find their, their website sorry. I don't need to distract you guys I... it's alright <laughs> Speaking oh, of distractions, yeah. do you see my uh, ter- the art for this terrible uh, reprint of Citadel of Fear? I love how it's like, awesome. it's com- oh, you, it's all composition, like it's like three different images all you know, together. You 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 want lots? Of, you want you want to be scared half to death by a PC horror game? Yeah. Um, play Dead Space. My God, yeah. I think yeah. Oh God, it, it's That's basically. Are nice oh, you played it? Yeah, yeah, it's a nice game. It's, it's like, oh my god, it's like suddenly things coming out everywhere. I mean, my heart goes shooting up to my chest like, crap! Run! As I said, I'm not very good at these sort of things, so it's even more uh, it's even more panic-inducing. Well, I really enjoyed um, Amnesia, The Dark Descent, and then um, the sequel they, play, they came up with, which was incredibly disturbing, um, called uh, Machine for Pigs. Um, but have you guys played these? No, 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 no. no Amnesia is um, mm. like low budget. It looks like a DIY game. It's ten out of ten on Steam. Because it's 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 superb. You can't fight anything. It's um, <laughs> you're, you're going through a, a house or uh, giant thing, and uh, it's filled with atmospheric horror. You know, creakings and wind. Uh, test your sanity. Um, and you're it's it's Lovecrafty in the sense that you're hopelessly overmatched by everything. Um, and uh, you end up with a squirming, pathetic mess uh, playing it. Machine for Pigs is different. It's a uh, kind of horror fantasy where you wake up 
uh, with amnesia in this giant Victorian building, and you have to figure out what the hell is going on. It turns out that you were involved in this enormous factory that was making I don't want to spoil it for you, but something don't very smile. disturbing. And uh, you have to, the game is you going deeper and deeper into the factory. Um, and both of these are, the mechanics are pretty simple. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not, um, they're not first person shooters. They're, um, they're more like adventure games. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but they're, um, but amnesia is, is flawless. If you want creepy atmosphere, you know, turn off the lights, turn up the sound, play it by yourself. Um, have a bucket nearby, uh, oh. and, and then uh, oh, uh, I added uh, it to my wish list. It's not on sale, but uh, sounds no, sounds those, good. Those those guys are, uh, I think, fractional is your name. I think uh, frictional, they, frictional, really frictional. Yeah, they're really nice. Uh, thank you, Jim, and thank you, uh, Paul. I mean, more recommendations the better. Thank you. Uh, there's another one called Scratches. I think he's out of print, but it, you might actually be able to download it for free these days. Yeah, it's one of that kind of adventure game. You can't fight in the thing, but it will just damage your sanity. <laughs> slowly. Oh, yeah. And you essentially you, you inherit a house that has got a very dark secret and... Um, Oh, very creepy stuff. Wow. <laughs> you actually nice. have nightmares every night you're in the house. Wow. <laughs> you can't oh, control. Oh, dear God. <laughs> Should we? But that, that's a very Lovecraftian vibe. And, um, Thank you. There's even a, this little cameo from Cthulhu as a painting you can find in the, in nice. the game. Oh, oh. 